for people who grew up in low-income settings that a number of studies have shown we tend to be more generous with what we have than wealthier people because we know what it means to have nothing and we know what it means to need something. So I kind of very much grew up with this ingrained attitude that when I have an advantage, I should share it. When I have a thing, I should share it. And, you know, that I should try to make other people's lives better through my work. And that if I'm not doing that, or if I'm profiting at the expense of other people, I should be kind of questioning what I'm doing with my life. What origin? From muse to manifestation, exploring why and how people create things. In this episode, I'll be featuring S.E. Smith, an accomplished writer and someone who runs DisabledWriters.com. You can find more at DisabledWriters.com and RealSESmith.com. S.E. Smith is also on Twitter at S.E. Smith. If you'd like to find out more about our podcast, visit whatorigin.com and join the conversation on Facebook, facebook.com slash whatorigin. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. So I am here with S.E. Smith, who is with disabledwriters.com. So can you tell me why you started it, why you thought it was important to have a community and for folks to connect with editors and disabled writers? Yeah, so I started Disabled Writers in 2017 with Vilesa Thompson and Alice Wong as co-partners. And that was around the time that Republicans were mounting a series of escalating attacks on the Affordable Care Act. And we noticed that there was a lot of coverage of this issue that didn't really include disabled perspectives at all. It was non-disabled journalists writing it. It was not bringing up kind of the concerns of our community. And then when ADAPT started protesting, you had all these headlines like, even disabled people are upset about what's happening with the ECA. And it was sort of like, well, yeah, of course we're upset. You know, our lives are on the line here. And We'd been kind of talking back and forth over the last few years about this kind of tendency for coverage of disability journalism to be by non-disabled people, pretty clearly for non-disabled people. And we kind of wanted to push back on that a bit. And the biggest thing that we kept hearing from editors was, well, I just couldn't find any writers who were qualified or I couldn't find any subject matter experts who were disabled. So we were like, all right, fine. We will put up a database and this will be the resource that you can use. So you can't complain about how it was impossible to locate anyone with the necessary lived experience or technical skills or qualifications. Do they always cover disabled matters or, or what, do you, what do you find just the experience that a disabled writer might have that they can go more in depth to a broad array of topics, not just about their personal story. Yeah, so a big part of our goal with the database was one, yes, to have actual disabled people reporting on issues of relevance to the disability community, but also to make editors aware of the fact that writers who are disabled can cover things that have nothing to do with disability. And certainly some of the more high-profile disabled journalists working today, like Serge Kovaleski, don't really cover disability at all because it's not a subject that they're interested in. And we also really wanted to make it clear that disabled people can be subject matter experts, not just people with 
lived experience that you can interview about what it's like to be on Medicaid or how it feels to have surgery, but that disabled people are researchers and attorneys and scientists and doctors and people with a, a huge breadth of knowledge to draw upon, uh, even when it has nothing to do with disability. So kind of trying to get at the fact that if your newsroom diversity is focused solely on, oh, we need disabled people to cover disabled things, you're missing out on fantastic disabled writers who are covering things that are not about disability. And, and I see a number of people obviously have some sometimes similar conditions or they can relate to each other. Have you found that it started a community between each other to talk and to support each other? Um, do you have that kind of connection with the writers? I think more what happened there was that the disability community is extremely active online. As you probably know, if you're familiar with Alice Wong's work, she has done a lot of organizing around Crip the Vote and a lot of other kind of Twitter hashtags and social media groups. And so what sort of happens is everyone in the chronic fatigue syndrome community will suddenly stumble upon us. And so I'll get, you know, 20 profiles from people in that community or people in the EDS community are talking about bad media coverage. And someone says, oh, do you know about disabled writers? So we sort of get these little clusters of various disability communities online. We do have a Slack where people can chat and kind of interact, but has been a little bit morbid of late. Um, in part, I haven't had as, as much uh, free time to get in there and moderate and kind of lead conversations in there. So we've sort of become more of a, a gathering point for information than a community at times. Yeah, it looks like you have a lot of people. I mean, I don't know how many total, probably over 100 here. Do you know right now kind of how, how many writers you have that are, you know, willing to put out the fact that they have a disability and are, you know, listed on your site? So we have, pull up my list here. It looks like right now we have 156 people who are live on the site. And we have some people who've had to withdraw, in some cases because they got jobs, which is very exciting. Um, and in other cases, you know, one person had family members who Googled them and they hadn't quite realized that being on the site would mean exposing them to unwanted attention from their family. And then we have some folks who just sort of dropped off the radar. And one of the things that I do is I follow up with writers every three to four months to make sure they're still listed and ask them that they want to update anything about their profiles. Because speaking as someone who works in editorial, it's always super frustrating for me when I reach out to a writer and get a bounce back or just never hear from them. So I kind of want to make sure that there's a high probability that you will get a response if you email someone on the site. Do you find that it is hard? It's hard for people to just be like, I'm going to put a label on myself. You know, I'm going to say, like, I'm going to pick a random person here. So I'm not sorting it. This person, they have a number of things, but they are a wheelchair user. I'll just say that so that I'm not um, picking anyone out. But that's an obvious thing. But do you find that some people really don't want to say, like, PTSD or you know, mental health. Um. I think for disabled writers, it's a little bit of a self-selecting pool in the sense that most people find the site because they are looking for kind of community and they kind of have embraced the disability parts of their identities. I will say I don't police any members of the database. I don't ask for proof that someone is disabled or say that you're not disabled enough um, because I think that's nonsense. 
But we definitely have a few people who have provided very limited details about their disabilities, which I think is fine. Um, I think that, especially in this political climate, with the disabled community getting much more active, particularly online, there's a growing kind of sense of disability pride and of being excited about identifying as a member of the community and of banding together. And almost because the levels of ableism that we're encountering right now are so pointed and horrific, it's almost become a survival tactic to be aggressive about how we identify to kind of find your people. But it's something that I definitely warn people about, especially younger people who don't have as much experience to kind of say, look, once this information is out here, it's out here. And I can delete a, an article, but I can't, I can't clear the Google cache. It's, it is there forever. I noticed that a number of the people in that disability writer pool have depression or mental health issues. Do you find that it just kind of comes along with disabilities? It's people don't get jobs and they don't get writing opportunities and it just builds. But if they, if they do, if you kind of help them get those connections, it improves. Or do, do you really... feel that there's a common theme of kind of depression or um, shame maybe around people with the disabilities? That is a really interesting question. Um, you know, I think, st so statistically speaking, about 20% of the population overall has mental health issues at some point over the course of any given year. And 25% of the population is disabled. So obviously there's a lot of overlap there. And I think depression and anxiety in particular are two very common mental health conditions. And as you say, I think there's a lot of comorbidity there where people who are dealing with situational depression, it can be very intense if you are struggling to find work or you're fighting with the medical system. Disabled people are much more vulnerable to trauma. They're much more likely to be victims of sexual harassment and assault and experience kind of disabledist abuse. So it sort of sets you up for mental health sequelae, as it were. I don't know if we have a large percentage of people with mental health conditions, again, because of self-selection. I do know that a lot of disabled people who are active online are mentally ill, I think in part because the internet provides such a great way to interact with people on your own terms. So you can kind of find your community, but you can withdraw a little more easily than you can in MeetSpace, as it were. I think that certainly finding work and making changes to your life can help manage mental health conditions. But I definitely wouldn't want to say like, oh, yes, you'll get a job and you'll feel much better and won't be depressed anymore. Because um, there's often a lot at work there. But it definitely is something that I try to be aware of when mentoring writers and kind of thinking through how things like depression may interact with the way that they work, whether mm. it's things taking longer than you think they should or feeling overwhelmed by editorial feedback or having a day where you really needed to go track down some sources and you were just exhausted and couldn't think. Do you enjoy mentoring? I do. A big part of my praxis and kind of larger work, not just with disabled writers, but in general, is not just mentoring, but actively sponsoring writers, because I want to create opportunities for people and I want to help them thrive, because I think that benefits them, obviously, but also kind of our community as a whole, and also the media as a whole, when you are sponsoring writers who might not otherwise kind of make their way up because they didn't go to J school or they don't have other kind of privileges that would allow them to 
skip the lower rungs of the ladder, as it were. So to me, it, it is really rewarding to see writers thriving. And sometimes they are not necessarily aware that I played a role. And that is honestly kind of how I like it when I know that uh, editors are reaching out to people that I recommend and making connections that way. Yeah, I noticed on your site, realscsmith.com, in clips you have, there at least, written for a number of uh, larger publishers, I suppose. So how, how did you go about, maybe with your own disability, pushing through and getting to the point where you were accepted? I mean, you know, a lot of it, I was commenting to someone about this the other day, that some of it is just sheer grinding and sending out. I probably sent out thousands of pitches over my lifetime um, and have written, I'm sure, millions of words at this point, possibly even into the billions, um, feels like that. And some of it kind of has to do with being the right person doing the right thing at the right time or a particular editor spotting you. So I was very fortunate early in my career to be in contact with Jessica Reed at The Guardian, who asked me about writing an opinion piece for Comment is Free. And so getting kind of that big platform exposed more editors to me. And then I had other editors reaching out. And so it was somewhat fortuitous and somewhat work. It was a mix of both. I just, I really hate it when people say, oh, if you just try really hard and bootstrap it, you'll make it. Because I see lots of great writers who should be getting more recognition and aren't simply because they're, you know, ahead of the curve with the way that they're thinking or writing about an issue or they haven't quite made the right in with the right editor. So there's definitely no no easy or straightforward path to success in media, unfortunately. Yeah. I know. I mean, it's hard to put yourself out there, but I know a number of people right now in various fields hustling and, and events or a random connection or this or that can change everything. Right place, right time, right thing, but also grinding, like you said. That was definitely something I really tried to do with our fellowships last year, which I'd like to restart this year, um, kind of giving people that lift up by working with a couple of publications to... So thanks to the Awesome Foundation, we were able to sponsor fellowships so that publications who might be reluctant to take a risk on kind of a newer, less experienced writer could be a little bit more confident about that. And so we had fellows at The Daily Dot and Rewire News who produced a couple of pieces in collaboration with editors there. And kind of we ended up with those publications because I had connections with people in editorial in both cases. So it was sort of an example of trying to use my network for the power of good. What do you think started this feeling? I know you said it started in 2017, but I, I've talked to a number of people that are in charitable work or, or just helping. Is it part of your soul or being that you, you want to help others? You want to take time to do that? Or maybe you grew up in, in a way that you always felt like you wanted to help other people? Where, where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, so I grew up in poverty. And one of the interesting things about looking back on my childhood is people hear things about it and think, say things like, oh, that sounds horrendous. How, how awful. And for me, it was, you know, it was just normal. That's what childhood was to me. And I think in a lot of ways, I had a really great childhood. And one of the reasons why was that my father did a really good job of making do with what we had, but also of making sure that we shared what we had. And I think this is a very common thing for people who grew up in low-income settings that 
a number of studies have shown we tend to be more generous with what we have than wealthier people because we know what it means to have nothing and we know what it means to need something. So I kind of very much grew up with this ingrained attitude that when I have an advantage, I should share it. When I have a thing, I should share it. And, you know, that I should try to make other people's lives better through my work. And that if I'm not doing that, or if I'm profiting at the expense of other people, I should be kind of questioning what I'm doing with my life. So I have certainly spent most of my life doing volunteer work for a lot of organizations and kind of trying to find ways to give back to my various communities in a lot of different ways, whether it's working on the sexual assault hotline or socializing cats at the Humane Society or trying to uplift writers who I think deserve more attention. I just feel like it's it's very difficult to be selfish when I've spent most of my life kind of experiencing pretty severe deprivation and seeing other people having that experience and knowing that I have the ability to do something about it kind of creates a sense of moral obligation. Right. It's I find a lot of times it's like the whole story of the guy that uh, there's a burning building and he runs in and saves a kid and then all the people want to call him a hero and interview him and say wow you sit you know he's like i just did what i was supposed to do it sounds kind of like it's an extension of yourself like you don't need someone to come along and say thanks for doing that so i have to ask for myself which i don't i'm not very political i have a i have my own um health issues what should i be watching in terms it's, it seems like some of your pieces uh, talk a lot about politics you mentioned a number of uh, things coming up starting the organization so like right now what should i be paying attention to are there certain uh people running people that might run for office or people that have gotten in that care about disabilities are there laws on the books that may change that i should care about this administration is a bit of a fire hose yes um <clears throat> i think there are a couple of interesting legislative things that are happening right now one is the Raise the Wage Act, which was just introduced and is going to lift the federal minimum wage to uh, $15 via a stepped wage, which is really great and exciting. But the very cool thing about it is that it's eliminating sub-minimum wage for disabled workers because historically organizations have been able to apply for an exemption to the minimum wage to pay disabled people sometimes pennies on the dollar. And so this would be really transformative for disabled workers and is something to be excited about. A good thing coming out of Congress. It feels sort of novel right now. Um, so that is in the House right now. And we'll hopefully see some movement on that soon. Kind of on the not so great side, we have the USDA is attempting to sort of, uh, basically the USDA is trying to kick almost 800,000 people off of SNAP via work requirements. So the long and technical version is a little complicated, but the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program has had a work requirements component since it was developed in 1996. But states historically were allowed to apply, apply for waivers to cover specific areas. So you could say, you know, people in this extremely low income zip code should not be required to, to submit proof of work activity. And they tried to get work requirements into the farm bill. That failed. So now they're kind of trying to do an end run on Congress. And this would apply to what they call able-bodied adults without dependence, but that's going to inevitably really hurt our community because there are plenty of disabled people who won't necessarily qualify 
as disabled for the purpose of this regulation. And also disabled people are more likely to be caring for family members who may not be dependents and to have other kinds of obligations that make it really difficult to meet work requirements. So that is open for comment on the Federal Register right now. And uh, handsoffsnap.org has some resources on that. There are also a number of states that are trying to enact work requirements for Medicaid, which is kind of a similar problematic issue. And we're kind of seeing this larger thing around discussions about Medicaid expansion. So Utah voters just voted to approve a Medicaid expansion, and now lawmakers are trying to roll it back because they are bad and should feel bad. Um, So there's a lot of kind of shuffling around of regulations happening that people don't always necessarily think of as applying to the disability community, but will have a really big impact. And one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in this year is kind of taking a look at disability and emergency preparedness. We had a lot of horrific natural disasters last year, including several in my home state of California. And one of the things that kept coming up was how vulnerable disabled people are. It's it's harder to evacuate us. It's harder for us to get the services and supports we need when we have been evacuated We are in flood-prone areas. We're more likely to live on the ground floor, so our houses are more likely to flood. There's sort of this long list of things that is just not being dealt with. And I feel like emergency preparedness should be a pretty bipartisan issue. Like, we don't want people dying in fires. And so I'm hoping that we can see some movement on this with uh, what's called the READY Act, which is hopefully, fingers crossed, rolling out pretty soon here. And I will say... You know, if you feel overwhelmed by the political climate, you are not alone. And following Crip the Vote on Twitter can be a really great way to kind of keep up with big picture stuff that's happening without feeling overwhelmed. And that also does include a look at kind of what various candidates are saying about disability. So they're nonpartisan and they won't explicitly you, endorse candidates. Did you say Crip like Cripple? Like uh, yes. Crip the Vote? That's cool. Yes. I like that. I like um, that. It is a delightful initiative. I I love Alice Wong, who's one of the spearheaders there so much, and sort of just kind of getting tapped into the disability community on Twitter in general. People are always talking about political issues in ways that I think highlight things people haven't been thinking about. The sort of straw debate that erupted in 2018 was a great example where you had everybody getting on board with, let's, you know, let's ban straws. Single-use plastic is bad. It's harmful for wildlife. And disabled people were going, hey, wait a minute here. There are some things you are not considering. And it felt like we really started to move the debate. And, you know, I was seeing people citing our work in city council meetings all over the country with people getting up and saying, I thought the straw ban was a good idea, but then I read this piece by Alice Wong and Eater, and I kind of started reconsidering, is there a better way to do this? And so I think it's a really great example of both how you can keep up with this fire hose of information, but also how you can pull things out that are actionable. So if you're feeling sort of powerless and frustrated and not sure what to do about what, like you after our call, you could go dial up the Federal Register and comment about SNAP. What would you say to people that aren't disabled? Like, how can they be more in tune with the conversation? Or what might what might help them to, to understand if they just... Nobody has perfect life, but if they're just going through their motions and they're not disabled. What, what do you think kind of the message is if the community could give one? I think the big thing probably is just to listen to us. Um, we are out there talking across all kinds of mediums. We're making podcasts, we're writing books, we're writing articles, we're appearing in the media. And 
I think especially when it comes to conversations about disability issues, take a minute to look around the virtual room or the physical room and kind of say, who is leading this conversation and who is participating in it? Is this disabled people talking about this issue or is it non-disabled people? Is it parents of disabled children speaking for them or is it disabled people who grew up disabled and have kind of that experience to draw upon? Because I think a lot of the social attitudes about disability come from a place of lack of knowledge or confusion. And it's not so much, oh, I hate disabled people or, you know, being disabled has to be the worst, but it's just that people have no frame of reference and they don't understand us. And so kind of opening yourself up to listening to us and engaging with us may sort of demystify some of the things that seem strange or difficult to relate to, whether that's, you know, a conversation about straws or discussing why we get so frustrated with seeing non-disabled actors cast in disabled roles or talking about why we're concerned about policy that seems beneficial but actually has hidden costs that people haven't considered. So, you know, it all just comes back to a saying that was developed by the disability rights movement in Eastern Europe, which is nothing about us without us. So if disability issues are coming up for conversation, make, it sh make sure that we're the ones leading that conversation. In terms of people that don't have time or they want to be charitable, maybe get involved with disability issues or back um, initiatives, how, how would you advise maybe some ways to start either giving money or getting involved? I mean, I would say the big thing that I tell people when they ask me about charitable donations is to try to keep your money local if possible, because big name charities do amazing work. They also get a ton of money, and a lot of it comes from foundations in this big, endlessly swilling slush pool of money. And so your dollars can really have more of an impact locally, whether you're donating to the food bank or your local cancer resource center or the organization that works with sexual assault survivors. And that can kind of be a way into taking a look at what kinds of services these organizations provide for the disability community. So some are disability specific, like we have a, an organization that is local to me that helps place people with AIDS to help them with tasks of daily living and other activities. But it's a good chance to, you know, go to the domestic violence shelter and say, hey, how accessible is this place? If you get a wheelchair user who needs services, how do you handle that? If you have someone deaf who contacts the hotline, do you have an interpreter on call or how does that work? So kind of giving locally and engaging locally can be a really great place to start with making a meaningful difference in your community. And the other thing that I tell people that is somewhat less popular probably is to get involved in local government as well. Just whether you're picking going to city council meetings or going to the planning commission meetings or kind of whatever agency or governmental body, just kind of make it your thing and go and keep track of what's happening in your community and use that as an opportunity for advocacy because people are sometimes surprised by the amount of work that you can do locally to make a really meaningful impact on people's lives, which might be something like 
commenting at a city council meeting about outdated language that's used in a document and asking if it can be updated, which I did recently, or attending police commission meetings and saying, hey, can you update your use of force? It's really outdated and poses serious risks to deaf and hard of hearing people who may not be able to hear and respond to commands from officers. So it's kind of, I think, a little bit less sexy in a sense, because you have to keep going to every meeting over weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months. And there's not necessarily a concrete sort of product or thing you can point at. But it, it will really make a huge impact in your community. And, you know, I always tell people that decisions are made by the people who show up. And on a local level, that's sometimes a surprisingly small amount of people. Like I have been at a city council meeting where there are three people in the audience. And because I got up and said something, a proposal went in a completely different direction. That is a tremendous amount of power. And I think people really underutilize it because they focus so much on what's happening on the federal level. But it's like, you too can get stop signs put up on corners. <laughs> Disabledwriters.com is our website where you can find uh, both writers and sources. I am Essie Smith. I'm also at Essie Smith on Twitter or at realessiesmith.com are two good places to start looking for me. And I will say, if you are intrigued by the disability community online, Twitter is definitely the place where I would start. Thanks for listening to this interview with S.E. Smith. I hope you found it interesting and motivating. There's a lot of ways for people to get involved in writing and also to help those around them. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, you can visit whatorigin.com and join the conversation on Facebook, facebook.com whatorigin. We're also available on all the major streaming sites. So Spotify, iTunes, or whatever you prefer, it's available there.